The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is uh, the talk program known as Socially Distanced uh, right here on KUCI. I don't know why I'm telling you that twice. You've got that down. Anyway, I'm one of your two hosts, Paxton Wright, with me uh, both digitally and in spirit, but not physically, uh, is good friend and (laughs) co-host. No, oh, you gestured to me. I thought I was supposed to hop in all organically. This is it's all gone wrong. Nothing, nothing is organic uh, in the age of Zoom, Justin. It's isn't that the truth? Yeah, like we're leaning into the bit. We're leaning into the uh, the specificity of uh, you know the the conditions of recording. That's all we're doing. I'm it, Justin. Hi. There you go. This is just this is just what we, uh, what we in the biz like to call relatable content. Woo. Yeah. Anyway, this is like a show where we talk about like movies and stuff, right? Isn't that like our thing? Isn't Pretty that much? Yeah. yeah. That's our MO, I guess you could call it. Um, yeah, we talk about the pop cultures and the consumption of the pop cultures in the age of COVID. Exactly. And I think now is as good a time as any to start doing that very thing. Because if we started talking about anything else, it would be weird. Uh, well, first off, actually, before we get into that, before we get into the pop cultures, let's, um, let's discuss us. Let's discuss about me and you. Let's discuss, uh, uh, let's put, let's put uh, some, some humanity into this just uh, sort of blanket discussion on media. Justin, how's your week been? Uh, it's been okay. I've, uh, been taking the last well the last i guess 24 hours off from working uh because uh yeah you know i'm four weeks into teaching a class so the last week is next week and i'm tired and i the thing is i also still want to finish strong with next week because next week is video games and i study video games like this should be where i shine this should be you know my big moment but i'm tired uh i don't want to have a big moment i want to nap um yeah, I'm I'm okay. Uh, I'm doing all right. How are you, Paxton? Yeah, I am uh I'm good. I've uh gosh, I haven't had a ton of uh Well, that's not true. No, I've had some I've had some life updates in the last week. Um one yeah. of which is I I don't want to get too into specifics of it right now just in case something goes awry or things change. Uh, but I am, uh, despite all odds, despite um, uh, coming into the workforce in the middle of a global recession and pandemic um, and having a film and media degree uh, <laughs> smack at the top of my resume, <laughs> oh, I've, yeah, I've managed to land some employment. Um, 
and its Woo, employment. Yay. I am relatively excited. Thank you so much. Let's take a let's take a round of applause. Everybody, do a victory lap. If you're in your if you're in your car <laughs> driving, just spin that wheel 180. Do a quick donut for me. Um, it's fine. This is totally advisable, and I, I hope the FCC doesn't have a problem with my saying that. Don't actually do that, please. I mean, it's probably already too late if you, you know, took that advice. In which case, I was just kidding. Anyway. Moving on. Um, yeah, I, I might get more into the specifics of said job in a couple weeks from now because it is quite exciting. Um, but for the time being, again, unless things are to change, I was told that I got the job and did the background check, et cetera, et cetera. But who knows? COVID's a weird time. So yeah, I might, I'll probably give some more updates on things within a few weeks. But for now, just rest easy all of you at home knowing that Paxton Wright, a person you've listened to over the radio and probably never met, um, is doing it, going to do just fine. I mean, unfortunately, the person that is like really invested in your employment and also I'm sure really invested in my class uh, just did a donut in the middle of the freeway. So <laughs> that's how you know you're a super fan. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> good lord i feel like i feel like this is a conversation that can get us and mainly me in trouble um <laughs> but you know what that's a problem for a later time uh okay now let's do the talking about the movies and the video games and the tvs and the whatnots um uh, I, I think one sort of significant story that's that's a few weeks old now if not almost like a month um, we never really got around to talking about it on the show, but it is uh, uh, pretty interesting and unexpected, um, and it's still a developing story, so I don't feel like we're it's totally um, like we've missed the boat on discussing this. Uh, but one, uh, like, like the Phoenix from the Ashes, one G4 TV, um, a long dead network, is apparently coming back. Um, G4, for those of you uh, not familiar, um, it, it was basically a network that, it was a TV network that died in 2014. They pulled the plug on, in 2014, but it, it uh, began in the late 90s, early aughts. And it, for a while there, was like one of the premier sources on television for news on video games, comic books, sci-fi, geek culture in general. It was sort of um, at, at the cutting edge of a lot of that. Uh, back when, you know, uh, watching cable and flipping channels was still a thing that uh, the, you know. The people did. That yeah, like, any, was just any, a thing. Yeah, exactly. Long, you know, when the, the ages what 12 to 23 demographics were flipping channels like g4 was uh it, it made its presence felt and it's it, a lot of you know significant names in the games industry and, and entertainment on a whole came out of there the probably biggest one of note being olivia munn uh, but also getting their start there were people like Chris Hardwick, or I guess Chris Hardwick had like some MTV stuff going on in the nineties, but he really sort of began to carve a path forward through G4. Um, Jonah Ray, uh, com comedian got his sort of got his first major steps as a writer, if I'm not mistaken through G4. Uh, who else? Morgan Webb, Adam Sessler, like people who are involved in, 
the in these industries still like kind of all began on this weird shabby little network um and then in i want to say the late aughts early tens they got uh bought out by i think nbc universal i want to i hope i'm getting all these details right i believe it was nbc universal um purchased g4 and sort of put it under new management essentially and the new executives that sort of took over the network were completely oblivious as to what the network was supposed to be um and they tried to rebrand this network that was all about you know geek culture as being more of like a spike tv you know tv for dudes kind of thing um and a lot more weird they they started airing reruns of cheaters of cops uh, campus pd entertaining shows in their own right i guess if you want like some kind of trashy television but just the absolutely complete wrong uh 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 network to be housed on and they took up large chunks of programming blocks airing these shows and i remember watching g4 back in the day in middle school and high school and being like why are they showing three straight hours of cops i want to see the new halo trailer or whatever (laughs) it was a network that was for i would say five between five and ten years um really firm in its identity and really sort of at the cutting edge and sort of spearheading the way for uh, games and and media journalism on a whole it was sort of a powerhouse on that front and then well like as it as it was peaking it suddenly by way of external forces underwent a severe identity crisis and with that identity crisis uh, dropped the ratings and dropped the sort of positive critical reception of the content that was being done and the network just sort of fell on dark times basically and after a few years uh, went kaput that's the little history lesson and now as of about a month ago it's been announced that g4 will be coming back in some form in 2021 the specifics of that return are tbd and it does leave some confusion and head scratching in the air of like what well, are you really gonna try and bring back a tv network based like that is that is appealing to a a uh, demographic that is so far beyond network tv um or is it just going to be a one thing that's been highly speculated i know is that they might do a um a lot of like reruns and just uh airing old content on peacock nbc's streaming platform but the the ins and outs i believe are still up in the air as far as i've been able to tell but it's interesting it's potentially exciting. I'm hopeful that they can do something cool with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the question that I have, and I think it's a question that you just basically kind of gestured at right at the end there, was like, who is this for, really? Because as you said, like, it, like G4 in its original form, the form which seems to be what is actually being revived, like uh, Attack of the Show and X-Play, I, I have seen as being like the two things that are being reactivated or whatever like that like those shows appeal to people who are well one of a particular age there is a kind of like content production around like geek culture and like video games specifically which is always sort of like what g4 was in my mind like uh you know for a little background about me like i 
I didn't watch a ton of G4 growing up because uh, just the my parents' cable package. Like we didn't actually have G4 basically until like after it had you know become irrelevant. So like the thing about games coverage is that like it now has skewed toward a kind of format. I'm talking about live streaming that has its kind of basis in uh, being something for. Okay, well, if you think about like who like the really popular live streamers are, they are streamers that, you know, target kids as their audience, basically. And yet, like, that has become such a force that, like, it seems like a lot of uh, games coverage has become very personality driven. The people who this would be targeted at aren't probably the people that are going to be buying cable packages. And so, like, what is the... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, if they're bringing back G4 as a kind of, like, as a kind of, like, internet video type thing, that would actually make more sense to me as some kind of, like, you know, weird game trailers-y revival type deal. Yeah. I don't know. Like, what do you, yeah, like, what do you, like, what's a version of this that you can imagine working, I guess, is my question. That's exactly kind of what I'm trying to think about. And I think you you helped me kind of nail it down a little bit. I think when you talked about... um you talked about how so much of modern streaming and so much of modern, you know, video game content is very largely personality driven. Um, and while that's true, I think so was G4. Like that was yeah. part of what made G4 um, a, a sort of, I mean, I, I, I don't want to necessarily say powerhouse cause they weren't on the same level as, you know, amc or whatever at the time like but, there, but was, there, there was but there was cultural cachet I within mean, their like, niche yeah, yeah. It, exactly yes um and and i think a large part of that was due to the to the identities of these shows namely attack the show and x-play um a huge part of the reason i watched so much i was i was a religious viewer of, of both shows for for years um, even well into the, the sort of dark ages of the end of G4, I continued to watch those shows uh, largely because you could, the, the personalities of the hosts were so, um, were so the, the consistent and so charming and so such a big selling point for the show. So people like Kevin Pereira, like Olivia Munn, Adam Sessler, Morgan Webb, all those people uh, really helped, helped build the brands of those shows. So whether or not those people come back, I believe actually of all people, Olivia Munn is in talks to come back, which is I read that, yeah, surprising. Which is, she's kind of the last one I would expect. I would think she's sort of past G four at this point in her career, but I, I can imagine her being the one that like a a suit who was really invested in this uh, revival working would want to get Olivia Munn because Olivia Munn I feel like is the person that has like is who's the, the person who's done the best. Like she has draw, G4. yeah, 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 exactly, definitely, and um, and I think I think uh, uh, so. Depending on who does and doesn't come back, those strong personalities will be such a defining selling point of these shows. I also think um, there is a, I, I think yeah, there is a way to to modernize it and do it in a way that is more, yeah, kind of like a a web series, which could have a bunch of different sort of offshoot uh you know uh byproduct shows within it so like you have attack of the show and uh x play as web series um and then you also do a lot of sort of mini content within them because like x play especially 
was kind of a people people remember it as this game reviews show but if anything it was almost more of like a variety show a little bit that was all about games um because it was it was the review there was always two reviews per episode each review being about four to five minutes long in a 20 minute long episode um so then outside you know for the other you know 10 to 12 minutes of the show uh the rest of that content was like monologues like comedy basically about video games that was admittedly hit and miss but when it hit it hit pretty well uh they nothing better than comedy about video games just always the best content it's all it's always very in touch and it always stays relevant most importantly (laughs) just look at newgrounds.com and then and then on top of that like sketch comedy was a big part of it some sketches which i still hold to being classics uh uh, drunk link the christmas episode that's great tv right there the kingdom hearts 2 george bush ad anyone who watched g4 back in the day will remember these Uh, these these are these are classics but like there was a wide variety of content so to um that that went beyond just reviews so to do something like that and then break it up into more miniature content uh, and which I think it would ultimately cut costs. Um, it would uh, it would create a wider spread of content across the board, um, and it would be more short and digestible, which people these days kind of want out of their media. Um, and you don't have to necessarily deal with the confines of a television show of like here's this next segment, and now here's this next segment. You can just have these all as individual isolated videos, and people can choose to consume them whichever which way they want um but maintaining the personality of g4 i think is largely important maintaining a sense that sense of humor maintaining a self-awareness of like the the downfall of g4 like commenting on that and like not not leaning into the bit well past its prime but like but being aware of what killed g4 in the first place making a joke of it and trying to move on from that. Um, I think there's an, there's potentially interesting approaches to bringing this network back. Um, wh- however they plan on doing it, I don't know. The saddest thing would be if it was really just, we're putting all our old shows on Peacock and Olivia Munn is doing like a reunion special or something. I, 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 sh- I would hope that's not the case, but I don't think it will be. I'm still kind of left with the question, like, who would watch this and what would this be the situation in which someone would watch it? Because, well, I mean, I don't know, maybe if it's like not targeted at the people that used to watch G4, like, uh, and, you know, like they bring on Olivia Munn as a kind of, well, just a general niche uh like niche celebrity appeal and just sort of like for the sake of continuity um then i can see it maybe working as like an actual broadcast channel but i mean like even like what a broadcast channel is is so different now like that was actually one thing i wanted to kind of talk about a little bit uh when you mention like when you mentioned flipping between channels uh just like how not a thing that is anymore at least with like people who have like the big kind of like cable or satellite tv package where there's just so many 
channels now that like you can't you can't flip between things in the way that you could even when like cable was like a thing when we were kids like and so yeah i don't know like there's just there's so many things that are different about the way people consume like content about video games and like what the kind of like structure of that content is which tends to be like longer form stuff that is that that you can watch while doing something else and seems like almost like designed to be watched while you do something else Mm -hmm. that um like i can like like i can see someone looking at that situation going like ah yes there is now a gap in the market for this kind of like you know short form content and there uh and there is that and i think there are you know uh, only a few like maybe like youtube people that are producing like you know video essays of around 20 minutes or so and even and even like the like the big kind of like youtube like content creators for lack of a better term are producing these like you know these videos that are like hours long that like barely that are you know barely watchable as like the main like you know if you are sitting down to like watch these things like in the way one would a tv show um or or a film or whatever like they're you know it's hard to consume them in that way yeah i guess i'm like i don't want to sound like a killjoy for this announcement because i'm i'm just sort of baffled by it and like i hope it's cool because i mean i have very faint memories of like watching of like finding old x-play reviews on like on early youtube mostly and going and, and like having a really good time with it and and like i think there is i think there ought to be more kind of like short form content about games uh like it frustrates me to no end that like all of these things are a million hours long and that brevity is sort of uh not valued anymore yeah i don't know i i'm i'm still just kind of like baffled by that as a revival uh, outside of the kind of context of the uh like it makes sense when rather it makes sense uh when placed within the context of like the the MTV animation revival that we talked about not long ago because it seems like kind of a, a, a revival of something for a that is nostalgic for a very similar age bracket and maybe that will be like the next kind of like the next like link in the chain of revivals uh, and like it'll be and like there is a sort of like you know a mass sort of movement within uh media publishers that's happening right now that we're kind of like seeing the individual uh like we're seeing these like individual churnings of revival and that's going to be a wave uh and maybe like maybe that's like the big kind of like media plan but outside of that i don't know yeah, I I mean I think that's uh, yeah I never like really uh, uh, acknowledge your your previous point about who is this for um, and I, I but yeah but I think you are yeah it does beg an interesting question because I would think that like yeah the people who it's for are people like myself who grew up watching G four who have that nostalgic attachment to it like which more than likely if I can get pretty ready access to it without having to get a peacock subscription um like yeah i'm i'm gonna watch this i want to see what they're doing um because it's it is a network that is significant and important enough to me and sort of helped develop a lot of my tastes and and helped helped me sort of really gain an appreciation for criticism i think especially of video games and at, at at a really pivotal age to sort of learn that kind of thing and so 
I, I definitely am curious to see what they do. And I think that, yeah, I am part of that niche that they want to appeal to. But if that niche is broad enough for that to survive is a bigger question, how they're going to attract more people into it when the market has thickened so tremendously. Um, when you have streamers, you have less players, you have video essayists, you have critics, you have so like this just sea of people from, from, from levels of, you know, small independent uh, content creators who average a couple hundred uh, views a video to, you know, IGN and, and GameSpot. Like you have, there's such a wide disparity and it's, it's going to be really hard for them to stand out. And I think one of the big things that they will have to lean in on is going to be personality is going to be some degree of recognizable faces um, is going to have to be something like, I think, I mean, something like Peacock could be a good platform wherein like it, automatically assuming peacock can end up thriving a bit more than it is right now because peacock is like a notorious hot mess on like the scale of quibi right now but if peacock can save itself then something like peacock could give something like g4 an, an air of you know relevance that other other platforms i say relevance with air quotes to be clear but like that other platforms and, and creators don't necessarily have they don't have that kind of cultural sway like g4 will um so maybe it'll be easier for g4 to get back into the fray i i don't really know um and whether or not they'll be able to stay relevant either will be another question they might have a they might have a you know uh an effect of like what conan had on tbs when he first came back from nbc which was like massive ratings right at the beginning and you know big story everybody was watching it everybody was keeping up seeing what was going on and after a few weeks the ratings sort of took a nosedive and yeah conan has remained on tbs since then but it's more out of just appreciation for the man and his work and less for uh, for doing gangbusters ratings um yeah. and so i mean we'll see we'll see what becomes a g4 just the same but i am hopeful they can do something interesting with it i'm hopeful they can uh sort of capture what made them special in the first place um but it's it's early to say right now um but fingers crossed hope for the best we can talk about it more when there's more information uh, we can revisit this topic on the show but yeah. yeah yeah i mean i hope it's cool like there's there's not enough cool short form game stuff out there like that is oh, that is a gap that they can fill and i hope they do Oh yeah, no kidding. Also, I will say just one one quick thing before I go. I highly, highly encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to go go on YouTube, do do themselves a favor and watch uh, the final attack of the show Christmas gift buyer's guide uh, uh, video. It was it was a segment they did on Attack of the Show about three weeks before the network went off air. And it was well after all the hosts realized, like they all they all knew they were about to get fired. They all knew they were losing their jobs. They all knew the network was ending. And it is it's the segment that's just about like, oh, you can get a great deal at Walmart on Casio TVs or whatever. But no one could care less. And the it is just eight straight minutes of the host like kind of goofing around and half butting their uh the the segment and just like just sort of making a mockery of the show a little bit because who cares anymore no one's watching this and the network's about to get plug pulled on it um it is a great i want to say it's the 2014 uh gift buyer's guide or 2013 
but I, it's, it's just great content. I, I, people should do themselves a favor and, and check that out because it's wonderful. All right. I think, yeah, we got to take a quick break here and we'll return shortly. Yep. Cool. See you in a bit. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Socially Distanced. I'm your host, Justin Kiever, and with me is Paxton Wright. Say hello, Paxton. Hello. It's me, Paxton Wright. Thank you for not doing the same bit as last week. I, I thought about it. It took yeah, every... I could hear it. You were so close. <laughs> I, let the, I dragged the O out a little longer, basically in a way of sort of micro reading the room of being like, will this land if I do it again? No, of course it won't. It didn't land the first time. Stop it. Oh, and then I finished the <laughs> word hello. Um, oh, man. Um, well, I, I know not to say say hello, Paxton, anymore. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, this, is, this is just as much your fault as it is mine, if not more it so. It really is. Yeah. It, it really is. is. Yeah, like I provided <laughs> you with the same setup again. <laughs> but it's fine. It's fine. When in doubt just do a meta commentary about the fact that you didn't say the joke and it will be funnier than the joke itself. So Woo. <laughs> great stuff. anyway, um, yeah, this is the segment of the show where we talk about uh, pop culture, media, whatnot that we've been uh, uh, feasting on in the last week or so. Uh, I, do we get to a point where I have to stop giving exposition for the show segments uh i mean i think we just need to like give them uh i think we just need to give them like formal names so we can just say like yeah th- this is uh this is the feast in the weast where we uh, talk about the <laughs> pop culture we've been uh we've been feasting on um justin i i hope you realize that we're gonna have to start calling this segment feast in the weast now i'm uh, i'm glad i hope we do and if I love to the- have an embedded SpongeBob reference in uh, in our uh, content. Then yes, good. <laughs> then it was all worth it. Uh, and I and I really love the fact that uh, calling our segment "Feast in the Weast" will do absolutely nothing to help our listeners deduce. What <laughs> so we have to keep explaining it every week, <laughs> and it all it does is just add more words and exposition to our our trying yes. to expedite our exposition we're just making it worse <laughs> but you know what lesson lesson learned we're three minutes into this segment and we've spent the entire time <laughs> dissecting what this segment is this is a mess anyway i watched a couple of movies in the last couple weeks and i thoroughly enjoyed them uh they i watched uh on shutter uh, I watched uh, two wonderful little documentaries, and by little I mean the exact opposite of little. They were extremely long. Uh, one of which was uh, uh, Crystal Lake Memories: The Complete History of Friday the Thirteenth, uh, and the other was Never Sleep Again: The Elm Street Legacy. Uh, these are uh, eight and four hour long documentaries, respectively, uh, that that give a an extremely and dare I say, in a good way, unnecessarily thorough uh, retrospective look on these franchises that are uh, just 
over bloated with sequels, reboots, rehashes, what what have you. Um, and basically giving a good comprehensive 30 to 40 minute look at each entry in these franchises uh, and, and the cultural impact that these franchises had. Um, and it's it's really great. I, I wish I'd watched them in the opposite order because I started with the Camp Crystal Lake one, the Friday the 13th, and then moved on to the Nightmare one. And mm. the Nightmare one is, it's, it's really genuinely fascinating because it's, you know, helmed by, the first movie is helmed by Wes Craven, uh, an incredibly essential uh, slasher movie that is made with a lot of care, a lot of art, a lot of love, uh, a genuinely very chilling premise, which like, yeah, the movie's a little campy by today's standards, but the, the premise in and of itself is still really effective and still really scary. Uh, it created a cultural icon in Freddy Krueger. Um, it, it, it utilized um, the, the world of the dreamscape um, for the way of doing some of the most creative kills ever put to film. Even in the really bad sequels, there's always... The, the bad sequels, the one thing you can give them is they're never lacking for creativity. They're always, there's always something interesting happening in them. And this movie really is so largely about that. And it's about this cultural impact and about the significance this had on the horror genre. And then the Friday the 13th one comes up and it's eight hours of people joking around of like, oh yeah, we knew we were making an awful movie, but it was going to make us so much money. And you know what? It did. And it's like, <laughs> there's just so, it's so bold faced and so brazen with the fact that it is like a trashy, tacky franchise and and i and i love it all the more there's one of the first sequences early on in the movie is the writer uh, writer for the original friday the 13th uh, wh whose name eludes me at the moment but he's talking about how he was like a working screenwriter in hollywood who was like he was getting freelance work from time to time like getting whatever he could get and he was going broke and he was just about ready to quit entertainment forever and quit writing he, he just he couldn't carve a living out of it and he's like he talks about how he's like oh yeah so one night you know in 1978 i think uh he's like i went to go see john carpenter's halloween and the theater was just going mad everyone was losing their minds at, at what they were seeing and it, he's like it scared the crap out of me and he's like he's like afterwards i walked out of that movie i went home and i called my writing partner and i told him i told him bobby I've, I'm just using Bobby because it's a generic name. He's like, he's like, I told him, he's like, I told him, Bobby, I just saw the new Halloween movie. It's incredible. We got to rip it off and make a bunch of money. And that is exactly <laughs> what they did. <laughs> and, oh, and man. Yeah, it is. It is just a wildly charming. And, and, and yet I think the most important thing, still very endearing a uh, couple of uh, movies, uh, both the, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street movies like still weirdly wholesome despite despite the Friday the 13th one being particularly an exploration on cynical filmmaking it like it does look at the the charm and the like human side of making these movies and you and they they get everyone they get every cast member in all of these movies that come back uh, they get, um, you know, all the writers, all the directors, all the producers, everyone who worked on these things is, is there to talk about their experience making these movies. And what's really cool is it seems like by and large, most of these movies were really fun to make. And most of these people, whether or not their careers went anywhere, spoiler alert, 99% of them didn't, but, but these people, uh, 
all look back on all seem to look back on their experience on these movies very fondly and really not with much not with much regret and it's just um yeah it's just it's a very just surprisingly heartwarming uh uh film despite the fact that it could have totally leaned into the cynical side of things so here's my embarrassing confession i've never actually seen a friday the 13th movie I have seen the like I, I've seen numerous clips from Friday, from Friday the Thirteenth movies. There was a there was a period in my life where I was uh, fascinated by uh, by slasher movies, but it was also a period in my life where I had uh, pretty much no friends who were interested in them, no disposable income whatsoever, no way to like, and, and I was ignorant of. Uh, film pirating so i really didn't have any great ways to access them outside of my parents direct approval so i wound up watching a lot of content about slasher movies so i watched like james rolf's uh um like halloween series which wound up being just like clips of like the best kills in uh your like your friday the 13th and your nightmares on elm street and so i'm left with this kind of like a sort of knowledge gap in terms of like the history of slasher films where I feel like I understand things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween as I've seen them and like I get sort of like what the kind of like the central fear is in those and like what they're playing on I guess like my my question for you Paxton before we get into like the content of the documentaries themselves is like what are like what what is like Friday the 13th like about if it's about anything like thematically i mean like you know like in uh like halloween is about the horror of the suburbs it's about like the isolation of you know like living in a neighborhood and there being like there being this kind of like deadly horror in the neighborhood but no one coming to help you because everyone lives in their own little island like what's friday the 13th like uh like uh what's its version of that I guess I mean a lot of what this a lot of the same things that um Texas Chainsaw played upon but like I isolation from a normal functional society like being out in the woods being being uh, uh you know almost every movie Jason ends up like destroying the the you know take, taking out the power so the cops can't be called and and that kind of thing like I mean it's it's about it's basically just about pure isolation it's which is a thing that i think halloween is really interesting because it does subvert that and it does take place in the suburbs which are you know densely populated and yet like there's that really great iconic scene when laurie strode is being chased by michael myers and she's like knocking on the neighbor's doors and they just turn out their patio light like Mm -hmm. it's like it's still like it is such a great subversion of that idea whereas friday the 13th leans into the very sort of stereotypical uh out in the woods killers coming to get you although i think the the to its credit um it wasn't really stereotypical at the time because the reason that friday the 13th it still resonates so strongly with people and the reason that jason Voorhees is arguably an even more recognizable killer than you know michael myers even is largely due to the fact that i think it it it, it established it is like it took and ran with hollow the tropes that halloween sort of really accented and refined because basically you have texas chainsaw massacre and black christmas in the mid 70s i mean you can even go back to psycho in the 60s if you're really trying to trace the history of slasher films but you know texas chainsaw and black christmas really sort of began 
uh, laying the seeds for what those tropes were going to be. And the larger exploitation genre on a whole did. Um, Halloween was a ripoff of Black Christmas that just uh, took the tropes and, and really kind of kind of streamlined them into being one neat cohesive little package of a movie and then friday the 13th just said let's take all those exact same things that halloween did and put it in the new setting and see if we can make a quick buck and we'll just market this thing really really well and and they said the biggest thing that they marketed on which i do think is very incredible was the title Friday the 13th, just that in and of itself is a like, is a scary, ominous title that is going to attract attention. And so they just leaned into the marketing of this movie is called Friday the 13th. How scary is that? Like that was, that was a huge part of how they sold the movie and it worked. And then the movie became a huge, a huge hot commodity and made a ton of money. And they just said, well, let's keep doing this. And then every other horror franchise went wait wait, whoa you can make that much money just by remaking halloween only with more nudity and more blood oh yeah we got to do that too and then everybody hopped on and thus like really a genre was born so like while halloween like yeah really kind of solidified and and um was a like core thesis for what a slasher movie is uh friday the 13th basically solidified the slasher movie as a as a uh as a commodity um it basically created the the marketable disposable cheap to produce uh guaranteed return on investment kind of horror movie that we now have are, are so familiar with um so it's a much more cynical cynical uh uh approach to horror because it really is done purely in mind to just make money that that is beginning and end of the reason for uh friday the 13th's existence there was no there really was no artistic grandiosity or or um inspired uh uh tale to tell where which you is different from nightmare on elm street or texas chainsaw or halloween which are more standalone um well-made movies friday the 13th is is pure intentional deliberate schlock uh built to built to make a lot of money uh despite being produced very cheaply and that just became the cycle of the entire franchise essentially yeah and and yet as you said it seems like people like really had fun making these movies so like was there from your documentary viewing like was there something about the production that was like what about the production of these films actually made it fun to work on because that seems because that story of people kind of like looking back on that time fondly seems sort of counter to this like vision of the franchise as being like very kind of like uh just commercially driven well, I think that's one of the interesting things is because it is a franchise that people that a lot of these people had fun making or were like very embarrassed by. And then as the years went on, sort of reevaluated their own impressions of a large part of it was because it was a bunch of young people in the woods, basically doing a camping trip um, and like, and, you know, doing that for work. And so there was, I think a lot of it just sounds like it was the pure camaraderie of it all. Um, and the pure, like, I think that's like, you see a lot of that when you hear about camp movies. I mean, uh, Wet Hot American Summer 
had that documentary that they made that was all about like the, the same deal just a lot of people who are there to make a movie basically having their own little like kind of summer camp together it's just a like a, it's everyone is there for a common goal everyone's there to make this thing everyone is very aware of what they're making and everyone is very aware that they're not there to make high art and that it's a stepping stone to their career and thus everyone is kind of approaching it with a lot of fun that's not to say there aren't mishaps and, and discrepancies and conflicts that went on in each of these films there is there is uh you know plenty of stories of inner turmoil and and political divides basically among people working on these films and some moments of like real genuine um unpleasantness for sure especially mm-hmm. friday the 13th part four probably has one of the most notorious wherein um, they had an actress uh, who she she dies midway into the film by way of she's she's uh, out like she's out skinny dipping late at night and then she hops into a raft and then Jason spears her through the raft from underwater um, and they were ah. filming this middle of the night this actress is completely topless in the dead of winter in this lake and she was freezing and they were essentially just forcing her to go for hours and hours and hours while she kept requesting to, oh, to oh go no. inside and and she was forced into this position to get this shot done and it was the guy who played jason who is great I, i'm forgetting his name he's he only played jason for that one movie um and he was this sort of big burly character actor from uh, from somewhere in the south and he talks about how he's like, he's like, that happened. And he's like, the, they were not going to stop the production. They weren't going to let her stop rolling. And so he's like, so I threatened to walk if they didn't just give her a blanket for for five minutes and a sandwich. And they, he's like, so it was after Jason threatened to walk. They were like, okay, maybe we should treat our actress with some dignity and uh, uh, care for her health and safety. And they did. Um, so that is one of the huh. less wholesome or savory stories in there it's a case in point that like yeah it, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows and it wasn't all great people getting along there's still the the cynicism of trying to build that franchise still shines through some of its production but by and large yeah. it really did just sound like it, it was a it was just a fun time to make these things and people went in pretty aware of what they were doing and then yeah as i said there were people who reevaluated as well and a lot of that was due to like the ravenous fans of these franchises, the people they met at horror conventions. And they were like people who basically have talked about how like they, they had no acting career after Friday the 13th, their careers didn't really go anywhere. And yet 40 years after making this low budget crappy uh, slasher movie sequel, they still have like fan mail. They still have people who are ecstatic to meet them at conventions. And it's like in this sort of microcosm world of this weird niche little movie franchise that like n- no one really values as high art. Um, these people are still um, held up as celebrities among a certain crowd. Um, and so it's also, yeah, it is also kind of a celebration of the fans as well. It's just, um, it's truly, truly wholesome content for the <laughs> most part. <laughs> it's nice. We could, I think we all need some more uh, wholesome content in our lives especially wholesome content that's kind of undercut by uh, graphic violence, to be honest. Like, I feel like pure wholesomeness is something that I 
have a kind of like uh, reflexive uh, resistance to. So wholesome content that's, you know, also involves uh, films in which uh, a kid gets stabbed through the neck with an arrow or whatever that kill is. Kevin and, uh, Bacon. Who uh, is oh, that's one Kevin of, Bacon. Yeah, Kevin Bacon oh, is man, in the first Friday the 13th. He does not show up for the, for the documentary. We'll say that. <laughs> but they do get Corey Feldman. So he kind of a big get. Yeah, you know, that's, that's not bad. That's not bad. I, I Honestly, I'm more stoked to see Corey Feldman there than Kevin Bacon, if I had a, if I had a choice. You know, uh, unironically agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, th- yeah, that, that's, uh, that's interesting. And I guess, um, no, really, like, how did the Nightmare, the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary compare? Um, it is... It, <sighs> I would actually, I was, I was a little less, I was a little less entertained by it. Um, and I think mm. it was, I was still, it was still very good. I have a lot of the same beats I hit about Friday the 13th also apply to the nightmare documentary. I think the, the real strongest parts of that documentary specifically though, are the two sort of biggest names behind it are, are Wes Craven and Robert England, um, mm. who uh, you, you really get to sort of see like, Robert England clearly seems like a a very cool and grateful guy for what happened as like some character actor who is really trying to come up as like a respectable uh uh, uh I mean I think I, he was a character actor but he was he was trying to really make his way in the world of of entertainment in Hollywood and then he ends up getting cast as Freddy Krueger and ends up being basically defined by this character of Freddy Krueger and despite that despite you know playing this one character for 20 some odd years um seems eternally grateful not just financially but artistically to have played the role and he talks about how like much of a ham he was during you know during the peak of that franchise like going to do like talk show appearances and uh and any like live appearance he had to do like he was always 110 percent committed like he, it was a role he so clearly loved playing and it is, and it's encouraging to see it because you could so easily see someone like that being growing bitter and and jaded as a result of being sort of put into that niche. And the only acting he really gets outside of outside of you know the days when he played Freddy Krueger are roles in horror movies where the joke is like, oh look, it's Freddy, but he's not playing Freddy. Like that's <laughs> that's I mean what he that's that's the niche he's fallen into and he doesn't seem jaded about it which is really encouraging to see and it's again a testament to the the joys of making these films and even Wes Craven who I hadn't seen actually despite the fact that Scream is one of my all-time favorite movies and I also love Nightmare on Elm Street like I hadn't actually seen Wes Craven talk at length before I'd always Mm -hmm. seen like clips of him and little interview snippets with him but like this documentary is the first time where I really saw the, the I mean, the late Wes Craven too. I think he died two or three years ago now. Um, but oh like, yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, what a what a what a visionary he is, and or or was, and what a um, a genuinely very kind person he was too. That's the other thing is every everyone who worked on those films, no one has a bad thing to say about Wes Craven he seems just like a really genuinely sweet dude who cares about his cast cares about his process cares about his product and uh cares cared about scaring the hell out of people but always being 
uh, uh, he seemed very diplomatic and very civil and very kind and empathetic. And that was like one of the key takeaways was that everyone talked about just how great it is to work with Wes Craven because he just wasn't throwing hissy fits. There was no real drama with him. He wanted everyone to have a good time and was very clear about that on his sets. And so it, it's really just, it was, I, I felt like the strongest elements to the nightmare documentary, even though Wes Craven only directed two nightmare movies, the first and Wes Craven's new nightmare, um, which is, I believe the seventh in the franchise. Um, but despite, despite that, um, his name is all over this thing and and i think it the documentary really above all else acts as a better testament to west craven's legacy as a director and as and as an individual as a person um above above all else uh it's really just it's a it's a great sort of crash course on learning a lot about this director um yeah i don't know that was sort of my biggest takeaway from it that that's a uh, like the especially the, the framing about Wes Craven is very appealing to me because Wes Craven is one of those people whose like name I have a certain like very fuzzy kind of uh, not not quite nostalgic but like a, a a relationship with like hearing the name and seeing the name specifically uh, that's very much inflected by my experiences going to like video stores that now no longer exist and there's and i think where i feel like i um like i know his name so well and it has to do with i think honestly the way his name sounds it's like it's a scary name it's It's like a spooky name name. (laughs) it's a really spooky name and but also like ironically his last name is like a is like a synonym for coward uh and like some uh which is kind of super appropriate but yeah it's just a spooky name and it's a name that i feel like i would see on boxes in like video stores or like dvd stores or whatever uh growing up and then like would immediately like feel a kind of like oh that's forbidden (laughs) and like which i guess is like the exact kind of like response you want to get out of like a little kid like when you uh you know when you're a horror director um but yeah no that's cool and i think that's um yeah, those are two series that I feel like I, I associate with like a, a certain aspect of growing up, but I never got to give them the time they deserve, and I would like to do that. So, yeah, it is it is a really really great way to sort of uh, get the sort of inside scoop on all of it, um, the the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like you really, I, I mean. I learned more about the Friday the 13th TV show than I ever thought I would. A show that I regularly forget existed. Um, and Nightmare on Elm Street had a TV show too. Uh, they, what? Yeah. Yeah. And neither of them, they were both anthology shows. They both had nothing to do with their respective franchise. They really just tacked on the name. The Nightmare friend, the Nightmare one at least was more of a Tales from the Crypt thing where Freddy was mm-hmm. the Crypt Keeper um oh that's clever so but but the friday the 13th series was just random new horror story of the week but also remember friday the 13th keep watching us because that's our title um i mean there there's just so much comprehensive information on these franchises that like it is almost almost like a substitute for watching any of these movies which i would actually encourage if you are also someone who has a 
passing interest in Friday the 13th, but not actually any interest in watching 12 mostly awful movies, um, <laughs> then th- this documentary is a great substitute. Although do watch part six. Part, part, six is, part six is a good movie. But the rest of the rest of that franchise, I, I feel, can more or less be substituted with the the highlights uh, reel that is Crystal Lake Memories. Um, all right, I believe that is going to do it for us this week, um, and I I have nothing more to add. That's the end of the show. Yeah, come back next week for more feast in the weast. Come a more feast of the weast. Well, the show's socially distanced, but you're. You, you come for the socially distanced, you stay for the Feast of the Weast. Is it Feast and the Weast? Of the Weast? Feast, feast in the Weast. Feast it's in feast the Weast. Feast in the Weast. Feast in the West, but we're mispronouncing Weast, so it's a rhyme and a catchy title. Well, there we go. And there you have it, folks. Stay sharp. Bye. And safe. Bye. And safe. More importantly, safe. But sharp, too.